Welcome, everyone, to the Two Tongues Podcast. Consider this your invitation to join Kyle and Chris on a journey through our minds. Where we explore the questions that have fascinated us for as long as we can remember. Could anarchy actually work? Does God exist? And just how did the cosmos get here anyway? Let me be the Virgil to your Dante, the Sacagawea to your Lewis and Clark. Let's take the guided tour through the dark chambers of our unconscious, seeking answers to the most important and unsettled questions of our shared existence. Ready or not, here we go. All right, all right. Welcome back, everybody, to the Two Tongues Podcast. Chris coming at you again with a solo episode. So we're going to continue to build off of uh, the series. Uh, one of the things I said I would do um, a little bit earlier was uh, to bring some of the um, passages from different religious traditions that um, correspond really well to the uh to the mystic experience and the things that you experience there, the um, you know the oneness with the universe and uh, all that stuff we've been talking about as um, kind of indicative of the of the mystic experience. And so, what I gathered today was um, a handful of passages from the Bible. So today we're going to do Christianity, I guess Judaism a little bit too, um, Jude Christianity. We're going to do both. All right, so. Um, um, I will I will bring to the table some others. I mean, there's like uh, uh, passages from uh, Hinduism uh, and Buddhism that um, that are right along uh, the, these same lines, and we'll you know we'll be able to talk about them kind of in the same context. So it'll be just as interesting. But for those people who uh, come from a Judeo Christian background, um, you know these stories will be familiar to you. Um, but and what I'm going to do is just put a little put a little spin on it the way that I like to do. Um, so let's uh, let's get into it. Um, what I noticed when I when I was going through my notes here, and um, you know, I, I just kind of handpicked a couple of select passages um, to talk about um, the stuff that I enjoy the most from the biblical stories and from from any religious stories. Really, um, are the creation stories. So when you know when a religion explains in their you know, mythological way, how the, uh, how the world came to be, those stories I find to be the most interesting. So I'm going to focus on that. And, um, and I noticed when I was coming up with these select passages to talk about that so many of them have to do with this idea of the logos. Uh, so it's a Greek word, um, which comes, uh, you know, from the Greek, um, Greek, Greek language um, parts of the Bible, so we're talking primarily the New Testament when we when we talk about that. Um, but it also has some connections even back to uh, to the uh, the kind of the Jewish roots and 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 Genesis. So the ones that I'm going to be looking at here are really going to be heavily heavily in Genesis, and then we're going to get into some Jesus stuff. So there's going to be a little bit of New Testament stuff that we'll talk about talk about as well. But before I get into it, uh, I want to talk about the word logos a little bit um, because logos means word. But what that what word means, what logos means in this religious context is not 
obvious. It's a little bit, uh, a little bit hard to pin down. So, you know, I, I my go-to reference obviously is, is, uh, Jordan Peterson who talked a lot about, uh, a lot about this in the biblical lectures. And, um, and he, he basically explains it in something, some, in a way, something like this, I'll do my best. So he says, logos obviously means, means word. Um, he says that it, it it actually means something more like true speech. Um, so first thing I want to mention is when we're talking about word or speech, um, I, I have to kind of bring your attention back to a an earlier solo podcast where I made, I think it was when we were talking about, uh, we were talking about the images from the mystic experience, I think it was. Um, but we were talking about speech and if you remember uh, what I what I was saying was that there's something uh, there's something very different about um, the example I used was like stimulating a um, stimulating a, a dead body with electric impulses and getting the dead body to make some noises you know like there's something very different about being able to make a noise you know and and being able to to, to speak to be able to communicate some meaning. Um, that I got really hung up on that trying to understand because it, the more you think about it, something simple like that, the more mysterious it becomes. Um, and so the context that I brought brought that up in previously was like, when you speak, you're you're bringing something from the unconscious. You're bringing something from a place in your inner world, in your psyche, that doesn't exist in the in the real world. It doesn't exist outside of you, but you're bringing something forth from it by speaking. So you. You have an idea, you have a thought, it exists in your head. You open up your mouth and you have the ability to manipulate, you know, your body and sound waves to communicate meaning from your inner world to, to other conscious creatures like that. You know, when you explain it that way, it starts to sound magical in some way. And and so this idea of speech to me does kind of seem magical. It, it does seem like um, bringing something into into the real world, into the cosmos, into reality, bringing something into existence from from your from your psyche, from your mind. And to me, um, I have a really difficult time f- considering my psyche to be anything different from this kind of greater idea of God that we've been talking about. Um, so this is kind of the kind of the mystical framing that I will use talking about speech or logos. Um, it's just how it seems to me. So again, Jordan Peterson says that Logos has something to do with true speech. And he explains this in a way that's, it's really interesting because if I say to you, um, you know, true speech, you know, telling the truth, not lying, all those things have religious uh, connotations. And we all kind of agree with those things. And it's easy, it would be easy to just leave it at that. But, But Jordan Peterson doesn't. He says, he says that when you when you speak or when you act in the world, that you basically can do that. Um, you can do that in a way that accords with the way the world really is. And, that, and again, that's the idea of telling the truth. What The words that come out of my mouth correspond to the way the world actually is. So this is, this is a truth. Uh, if, the th- if the words that come out of my mouth are, are, they don't correspond to the way the world actually is, then, that, then that's a lie. That's deceptive. That's misleading. Uh, something like that. And he says... Uh, when Jordan Peterson talks about this, he says that you know people don't realize the degree to which they control kind of their destiny. Um, what I mean here is, you, you know, try to imagine somebody who's like a 
compulsive liar. You know, we all know someone like that or have had a run in with somebody like that. Um, a lot of times those people, you know, they, they kind of believe their own lies or they, they, they can do that to a degree that allows them to live with themselves, even though they're full of shit. Um, but we all know people like that. Some people get by like that for a very long time, you know, maybe their whole lives. The thing is that when you get by like that, you know, let's say you're trying to get something, trying to get your way, and rather than going the honest way, you go the dishonest way, and it works, and you get what you want by, by lying, let's say, that what that does is it reinforces kind of psychologically in your mind that you can get what you want by using this strategy, by being dishonest. And, uh, and the more you do that, the easier it becomes to lie and be dishonest because every time you, you, you use that tool, it works. It gets you what you want, right? So people get, um, you know, they, they get into this, this cycle of reinforcing that type of behavior. And what Jordan Peterson says that people don't realize is that you are literally, when you practice something over and over and over again, especially when it's linked to getting what you want, you know, when you have those motivational forces behind you, that you are literally programming, you're, you're building the wiring in your brain that supports this lying uh, behavior because you want to make make a you know make permanent the mechanism in your brain that that is succeeding that's getting you what you want and if that's a deceptive strategy if that's lying then uh, then you are literally building this infrastructure in your brain that's designed to lie uh you know so that you can continue to get what you want the problem with that uh according to Jordan Peterson and I completely agree the problem with that is that when you build that infrastructure in your brain, it becomes more and more difficult for you to be honest, uh, maybe impossible. Maybe it becomes an obstacle that you have to struggle to get over. You have to tear down that wiring or build up some new honest wiring. And the people who don't do that, the people who never have occasion to do that or reason to do that, they, they live in a world that doesn't correspond to reality. And at some point, it, the house of cards comes crashing down because you can't exist uh, in the world, um, using the strategy of deception and dishonesty forever. It's a, it's a, it's a game that, that's temporary. You can only do that for so long. So the idea here is that, that somebody who finds themselves, you know, in this situation where they've reinforced to the nth degree, this bad strategy, um, that they will, that they will eventually find themselves, um, sort of believing that they exist in this world that, that, you know, doesn't correspond to reality whatsoever. And eventually they can't get what they want by lying anymore. That the, the whole house of cards comes tumbling down and they have no recourse. They have no other system built up in their brain that will allow them to, uh, to, to try a different strategy. It, you know, it kind of puts them back at square one. It puts them in that, um, you know, in that state of chaos, as, as Jordan Peterson would say. Um, and so I guess this is sort of what I, what I mean is that the, the, this idea of true speech, that, that like speaking and acting in the world in a way that corresponds to the, to the way the world actually is, that that's really the only way of kind of living truthfully and living kind of in formation with the world. Um, so, so this has something to do, again, with this idea of logos uh, that we're going to talk about in some of these biblical passages. 
Um, the only other thing to talk about there maybe is that, uh, and, and we'll get into this a little bit here in, in, in a bit uh, deeper in, but Jordan Peterson would also say that the people who live in that uh, deceptive world, that, that uh, you know, they, that they, the world that they think works, but it's really just this, you know, ba- error-ridden map that they have in their in their minds that they're using to navigate the world, um, that those people find themselves living in hell, that that's what that that's what that becomes, um, and vice versa. If you're somebody who's speaking truthfully and navigating the world honestly and trying to correspond your actions and words to the way the world actually seems to you or re- reveals itself to you, um, that 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 person. Uh, finds themselves living in something like heaven so that there is some sort of, you know, coming from Jordan Peterson's sort of uh, uh, psychology practice, you can imagine him, you know, talking to people in really, really dire straits and really tough places, you know, very depressed people, you know, nothing's going right for them, you know, maybe they're suicidal. You've got, you know, really nasty, you know, situations that people find themselves in where they end up on the psychologist's couch, um, that that if you were Jordan Peterson talking to these people and hearing all their frustrations and their sadness um, and knowing that as they're explaining that to you that these people are living a lie and that uh, you know the hardest thing that they that they can imagine doing is to is to start living you know truthfully um, that those people you know he's sitting there looking at them on the couch talking to them hearing their pain and he knows that that those people are living in hell. And they're living in hell because they've lied themselves into it. And it's so much more powerful than just, you know, a decision. Like these people aren't deciding to live in hell. They created it for themselves by lying to themselves over and over and over and over until they believed it. So again, they exist in a world that that is not like the real world. And that's why, you know, they're failing, you know, in everything they try. Uh, Those people are living in hell. So I just want to emphasize that uh, this idea of heaven and hell kind of kind of linked to that. All right, so let's go ahead and jump into some of these passages. Um, so what I did here is I actually went. Uh, I told you guys before that I have um, I got a bunch of notes that I keep, and they're you know some of them are are garbage and some of them are gold, but it's just like those those thoughts and ideas that will pop in your head. Uh, like I mentioned before, most people just say, oh, that's interesting. And, uh, or maybe they'll say, oh, I'll remember that. And they, and they don't. So these are the, the good ideas that you wish you would have written down and you've forgotten and can't think of again. So this is what I've gone to to pull some of these passages. Um, again, I, I had these thoughts once upon a time. I think some of these go back, you know, several years. Um, but uh, but I had it kind of already there in my notes. So um, maybe I'll maybe I'll try to read some of these uh, or talk through them high level. But the first one, um, I'll just start chronologically with the beginning. So the first one starts off with the story of Adam and Eve. Um, and it's interesting because uh, the story of Adam and Eve, um, <laughs> you know what, I'm just going to read you this passage and then we'll talk about it. So there's a uh, passage in Genesis uh, in the third chapter. Um, and it's right at the end of the story of the Garden of Eden where uh, Adam and Eve have eaten the, eaten the fruit um, that they weren't supposed to eat. God has found out. Um, shit has hit the fan. And uh, Adam and Eve are being, uh, you know, they're being um, kicked out of the Garden of Eden. So here's the passage that I want to I read to you. And the Lord God said, Behold, the man is become as one of us to know good and evil. And now... 
lest he put forth his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore, the Lord God sent him forth from the Garden of Eden. All right, that's it. So this is something that might not strike you as interesting because it's something you've heard a bunch of times. Uh, if you live in the, you know, if you live in the Western world and the Judeo-Christian tradition, you've heard that story a bunch. Uh, I did too, you know, growing up, you know, in Sunday school as a kid, you heard this story over and over and over again. And then you've got some kind person in church telling you what it means. And most people never think about it again or never think about it any deeper or any further. Here's the thing. Um, this, this passage is, is basically suggesting that what, you know, where God told Adam and Eve that they could eat of any of the fruit of any of the trees in the garden except for the tree of, of the knowledge of good and evil, that when they eat that, when they eat that fruit and they know good and evil, God says, the man has become as one of us to know good and evil. Okay, so first things first. God says that man has become as one of us. Okay, us. That, that, that refers to more than one individual, usually, when we use that word. Uh, but God, in the Jewish and Christian traditions, is not plural. God is one. God is one. That's very important to the Jewish tradition. It's very important to the Christian tradition. So why in the world do we have this passage where God is saying that, you know, man has eaten the fruit. He knows good, knows good and evil. He's become as one of us. So I think that's tremendously important, and I want to talk about that. Uh, the other thing that, um, that you, you might notice is that while God told Adam and Eve not to eat from the fruit of the tree of, of knowledge of uh, good and evil, um, what he says here is, you know, he says, Behold, man has become one of us, to knowing good and evil. And he says, Now, lest he put forth his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. So God sent him forth out of the garden. So oh, pump the brakes for just a second. Let's let's go back here a second here. He's saying, he's saying, okay, Adam and Eve broke the rules. They ate the fruit. I told them not to eat. Now they know good and evil. But that's not the end of the story. God says, lest he put forth his hand and take also of the tree of life. So this is the reason why God is kicking Adam and Eve out of the garden. He says, therefore, the Lord God sent him forth from the garden of Eden. Okay, so I don't know about you, but I was always told growing up that Adam and Eve ate the fruit they weren't supposed to eat. They disobeyed God. And because they disobeyed God, they broke, you know, the most sacred covenant between, between the creator and its creation. They, they disobeyed God. That's why they were kicked out of the Garden of Eden, because they sinned for the first time. Because that's the original sin that the Catholics will tell you about. You know, that, that, that they, human beings in the beginning lived in this perfect, you know, perfected state in this perfect place, this walled garden, as Jordan Peterson points out. And, uh, you know, um, you know, they, after disobeying God, they sort of forfeit the privilege of having this perfect place to live, that they're fallen creatures now. So, so now they have to live in the fallen world. They can't live in this perfect garden anymore. But that's not what the passage says at all. It's like, it's like God saying, ah, shit, uh, they broke the rules. Um, now, now the real danger here is that they're going to eat also the, of the tree of life and live forever. So I think it's interesting that 
that the earlier passages in the Bible talk about God, you know, God telling Adam and Eve not to eat the fruit of the tree of knowledge, but he doesn't say anything about the tree of life. But now, when they've broken the rules and they know good and evil, now God is concerned that they will also eat of this other tree. And if they do that, then they're going to live forever. Okay, what's the problem with that, God? What's the problem with that? So it seems like what he's saying here is that God is, a, is a something, is a creature that knows good and evil. And it's a creature that is immortal, that lives forever. And when human beings ate, ate the fruit and became uh, like gods, knowing good and evil, that they're kind of halfway there. They're halfway to God. Now suddenly, if, if they know that they could just eat this other fruit and live forever, then what separates man from God? What separates man from God then? Well, I'm not sure. I don't know if there's anything, and the Bible doesn't, doesn't specify. But it does seem to spe- specify that God is concerned about this, not willing to allow it to take that risk, not willing to allow that to happen. So man doesn't get to become God fully. He gets kicked out of the garden. Did you, did you ever hear the story told that way? Does that ring a bell to you? Go back and read it. Genesis chapter 3, 22 to 23. Real, real short. Go back and read it. Blow your freaking mind. So, okay, so this is the context for what, what the first passage is here, and I, I want to talk about. Um, and my notes here basically say that, um, that the Bible frames um, Adam and Eve uh, as, you know, not, not being uh, permitted to eat the tree of knowledge. Um, and then, again, God kicking them out sort of at, with the concern that they might eat uh, and live forever, that they might become as one of us. So going back to the one of us business, this whole idea of God is plural. Um, this, to me, s- strikes um, of the mystic experience. You know, when you have the mystic experience and the most important and powerful takeaway is that there is no distinction between yourself and the rest of, of existence, that, that everything is one. That when you take that, that feeling away, um, imagining God as many things, um, you know, it's not, it's not so difficult to do because, because you, you live in a world where there are many things. You know, there are objects, there are distinctions, there are boundaries. Um, you, we live in a world like that. You know, when the mystic experience tells you that, well, maybe that's something like a, like an illusion, and really we exist as one as one unity, as one thing. Um, that we kind of already, uh, once you've had the mystic experience, understand that even though the world, the perception of the world is as many distinct things, that it's really just just one thing. Okay, so so if if in the mystic experience you understand God, whatever that is, to be the one thing that everything is. And in, in the Bible, God says to become as one of us. Uh, that that doesn't sound so weird anymore. It's, it's not. It's not like I'm going like I'm asking the rabbis here to to break out the um, you know the rabbinical books and uh, and 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 tell me you know what the you know what the meaning is behind this passage that's unclear. You know, for those of you who don't know, uh, things like the the Midrash and the uh, Mishnah and the uh, Talmud and things like that, that the Jewish people have um, as sort of, you might call them supplements to the Bible, that that's what they are. They're like the rabbis for hundreds and hundreds of years going through these passages, like what I just described, the Bible talking about God as plural. And the rabbis have to explain that because, you know, there's no explanation in the Bible. You know, I don't have to do that 
because I've had the mystic experience. So I, again, I understand that this idea of God being one and many simultaneously is not, is not strange to me really anymore. That I understand that the, that being, that the, that the world that we exist in, um, is, is, you know, it's very different from the kind of reality behind it. That thing that I'll, that I'll call God, that's, that's one thing. So again, when, when the passage says to become as one of us, and we have this weird thing where we're talking about the uh, God is plural, that this really just just can be chalked up to the truth behind the mystic experience, that religious truth that you take from it. Okay, um, okay so there are other passages um, in the Bible that are like this, that talk about the plural, plurality of God, uh, and they're in Genesis as well. They're early on, so you know, not just saying to become as one of us, but also uh, in, in the Bible, there's a passage earlier on, uh, I think in the first chapter, and it says, um, so God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female created he them. So this is from the you know King James uh, Version. And there's, there's two separate stories in Genesis that talk about the creation of man. One of them happens in the first chapter and one of them in the third chapter. This is the first one. And it, it says, you know, that man was created in the image of God, male and female. So here you have to sort of understand God to be, to be both male and female or masculine and feminine. Um, because human beings were made in his image and we're that way, both masculine and feminine. So this is a similar situation where we're talking about, just like we were talking before about, you know, God being referred to as us. Now we have God being referred to as male and female or masculine and feminine. And we see that reflected in, you know, the rest of creation. This, we're all split up, you know, and divided along those lines. Uh, that, again, once, once you've had the mystic experience, thinking about, um, thinking about God as the union of opposites or the union of these, of these two things, m- masculine and feminine, that's not a that's not a difficult that's not a challenging proposition to accept. You you, you completely understand that, you know, as God as as um, you know as as uh, being kind of kind of uh, represents sort of God, um, you know, in the world uh, that we exist that way, you know, both as man and, and and woman. So that that that's sort of tied to the fractal idea, that fractal nature of reality that. Um, because God is both masculine and feminine, that his creation, that which is a reflection or a representation of God, according to me, according to the mystic experience, um, that, that that's also seen masculine and feminine. So you have kind of a mirror effect, you know, like however God is, that's reflected somehow in, in, in being in the world. So it very strange, you know, if you're just reading the Bible and you come across these passages, they're very strange. You you would be confused. I was for years and years, and I you know asked questions to various you know religious people, the preacher at church or the uh, you know rabbi or or imam or whoever that I happened to come across, and talking about those sorts of things. Um, everybody's got a different different opinion. Um, those people who who haven't had the mystic experience, in my opinion. Um, they don't have all the information that that you need to to kind of make that determination. Once you have the mystic experience, these sorts of passages don't seem strange. Um, at least they don't seem as strange. All right, <clears throat> all right. So there's next next passage again um, from from 
Genesis. And I, the note that I uh, made here for myself years ago was I was watching a TV show. I don't know, remember what it was, a documentary of some kind. And and the uh, the person on, on the show, he said something that caught my ear. He said that when people give things a name, that they separate those things from themselves. And that immediately made me think of of Adam in the Garden of Eden naming everything. I always thought that was weird, like... You know, we have this story in the Bible about the creation of the universe, and it's all this, you know, crazy kind of out there um, images about, you know, the abyss and the deep and the, you know, the, the you know, uh, God, God creating the heavens and the earth and let there be light and all these sorts of interesting, um, you know, powerful images of just, you know, something being created from nothing or the universe exploding into existence. Or you got these dramatic images that come to mind. Um just following that, though, we have this passage where, where you know, man has been created, and you know he's like existing with God. And what does God ask him to do? He he asks him to name all the creatures that he's created. And then you just imagine Adam going around booping all the animals on the head, saying tiger, elephant, sheep. You know, it's a very strange image. Um, why is it there? Why why tell that specific story in the middle of this grand story about the creation of the cosmos <clears throat> and of man? It's weird. It's freaking weird. Um, and I always wondered about that. So here uh, here again, I'm I'm um, uh, listening to this uh, guy on TV, and he says when people give things a name, they separate them from themselves. So so I guess I guess there's this allegorical type of image that comes in my mind you know that that goes back to the mystic experience where where we imagine god as one and if if and i mentioned this before in a in a prior episode but if god is one and god is all that there is there's really there's really no no knowledge that's possible you can't have knowledge um about god and the reason is that there's nothing outside of god to know it there's nothing that can observe it, that can see it, that can experience it. So, you know, if, if everything is one, that there's, it's not possible to have an experience. But if you, if you start to limit God, if you start to separate things out from itself that are now limited and not infinite, that, that then you can know those things because now you have these things that exist apart from the infinity, apart from the oneness of God. And so that's kind of what I imagine if God's creating the heavens and the earth, then all of a sudden there are heavens and earth there, um, and that those things can be known. Um, and so, so there's this, there's this idea of consciousness kind of, kind of coming into focus here, um, where, where Adam is, you know, again, representing consciousness, that Adam is naming these animals, and by naming them, he sort of He's sort of separating them from the oneness of God and making them somehow their own freestanding, independent objects. Um, and it's something like, like that seems to be just as important, <clears throat> uh, maybe, you know, maybe of equal importance to God saying, you know, in, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Like that seems to be just as significant as Adam naming the animals in this story. And I think the reason for that is that it's to be understood as consciousness playing a role in separating being from non-being and creating and, and allowing the universe to exist, freeing it from 
It's oneness with with the infinite, oneness with God, and bringing it into existence. And and he does this with the spoken word, with the logos. Adam is speaking the names of the animals into the world. So again, I, you know, this is going to be a hippy dippy episode, guys. But again, I just I'm just thinking here about um, about Adam being. Uh, you know, being a, a representation of God, being, again, a creature made in God's image, a conscious creature. So you have God, in my opinion, uh, to be understood as something like consciousness. And you've got Adam um, in the world who is a conscious creature existing in in God. And, uh, and he speaks from, again, from his unconscious, from his inner world, from his psyche. He speaks the, the words into the world. And somehow doing that is, is, is participating in creating these animals that exist in the world. Um, and again, y- you have to wonder if this story of Adam naming animals is, is included in this glorious, you know, powerful, dramatic story about God creating the cosmos out of nothing. Um, and then God himself in the passage saying that he's creating human beings in his own image, that you have to sort of see Adam's role in this story as, as participating in the act of creation. Um, and again, he's doing that with, with the word. So this will be a, this will be a theme for the day. Um, the story, the passage in Genesis, in the first chapter of Genesis, it says, you know, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And then it goes on to say, and the Spirit of God moved upon the face of the water. So I'll, I'll mention here that, you know, when God creates the heavens and the earth in the book of Genesis, he hasn't created anything, anything material yet. You know, even, he hasn't even said, let, let there be light yet. He's created the heavens and the earth, whatever that means. And the Bible uses words like, you know, the abyss and the deep, and these are connected, um, and Jordan Peterson, of course, will tell you, um, to chaos, to Tehom. Uh, that's the goddess that uh, the Babylonians and Sumerians called Tiamat, um, but it's the dragon of chaos. It's the, it's the matrix of being. It's, it's, that, it's that terrible, powerful, life-giving and life-destroying force that's, that's responsible for for things existing at all, for that's responsible for reality. It's the underlying kind of, kind of um, uh, primordial structure that everything comes from. Um, so, so this is this is the scene. You know, the heavens and the earth have been created. Um, all we have is this abyss, this chaos, this the deep. Nothing has been put into it yet, or, or brought forth from it yet. And the Bible says, and the spirit of God moved upon the face of the water. So in this place, there's heaven and earth, and there's water, and there's God, and that's it. And it's, it's, it's strange. It's interesting. You know, it's not clear what's meant by, by heavens and earth here, but, uh, you know, um, we can imagine that as, you know, maybe space and time or something, that, that, that something has been created that can be filled with things. And the water, you know, the fact that there's water here is interesting because, because, uh, you know, you can't say God created the heavens and the earth and maybe there's water on the earth, but it's not, um, it's not so straightforward. And especially when you consider uh, what I said, you know, in a, in a prior podcast about water being um, an archetypal image associated with the unconscious, you know, the water 
is 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 that unknown part of ourselves. It's the it's the part of ourselves that isn't being. That's that's the non-being part that I that I call God. Um, so so that's present here. The water is here, and the spirit of God is moving upon the face of the water. Um, boy, I mean, try to picture what that try to picture that you know what that what that scene looks like. You know, I don't know if that's possible, but it's interesting. The reason I bring this up is because Genesis talks about again in the beginning and this this happening in the beginning. God is there. And he's he's a spirit moving across this the water, moving across this potential that can become the world. And there's a passage that corresponds to this in the New Testament, um, in, in the book of John, and it starts off just the same, in the beginning. And this is what it says. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Okay, I don't know about you, but that is confusing. It's it's beautiful. It makes it makes you think. But uh, but it's confusing. You know, what is that supposed to mean? In the beginning was the word. Okay? So before there was anything, there was the word. And the word was with God. What does that mean? Does it mean it pre pre-exists God or it, it, it exists with God somehow? Are there, are there two gods here, the Word and God? What's going on? And then it goes on to say, oh no, the Word was God. Okay, so in the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. So here we have something, again, we're talking about the Word, which is that logos that I, I talked about earlier, that, that idea of true speech, that idea of the of the thing that we can... That we can um, expel from our bodies and from our psyches into the world the word um but now we're but now we're saying that it's synonymous with god so it's but it's simultaneously something that's with god and it is god well that's weird you know when you when you compare that in the beginning was the word to genesis in the beginning god created the heavens and the earth and the spirit of god moved upon the face of the water here I, ha- I have to imagine that when John says in the beginning was the word, that this is somehow similar uh, to what Genesis is saying when it says the spirit of God moved upon the face of the water. So there's a connection here between logos, the word, and the spirit of God, whatever that means, the spirit of God. Um, and here it says that, uh, that the word was with God. So the, sp- the spirit of God was with God and the spirit of God is God. And there's just something weird about this. I, it definitely seems to be the case that John is referencing this passage from Genesis. Um, you know, th- the most recognizable words from the Bible, in my opinion, are in the beginning. And this is what John starts with, in the beginning. How, how can he be referring to anything else? So there is a connection between what John understands as Logos and what Genesis talks about as the Spirit of God that was present you know when when the when when the cosmos was created when 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 the world was brought into into being um so again this is this is the idea of logos that we're talking about um so so i think that just to focus again on this idea of um the word being god but also being with god i think that what this forces you to do is to imagine god as a multiplicity you have to imagine that that God may not be may not be this one thing, but but maybe maybe more than one thing, or or maybe maybe uh, 
to be understood in different ways or in different forms. It's like it really, it really gets you thinking, what does that mean? But when you have the mystic experience, even this, even this becomes pretty plain. And the way I explained this before, and I'll try to do it again here uh, without confusing the audience too much, um, is that um, when I imagine the creation of the world, when I imagine the creation of the universe, um, I do I do think about you know the Big Bang, the way that physics describes it. I don't have any problem with that, um, but I but I also think a little bit differently. I, I think that um, if you are to believe the intuitions from the mystic experience that God is, is one um, and that what that oneness is is something like consciousness um, because that's what you take away from the mystic experience for sure. Um, w- the way that I make sense of, you know, the, the world, you know, being, being the way it is and God being understood as, as sort of, uh, uh, you know, something different as the kind of the oneness, the wholeness, um, that what I imagine here is that consciousness is the thing, is the, the only thing that exists, the thing that we call God. And that because I'm a conscious creature, I understand consciousness to some degree. I know what consciousness does. Consciousness observes things. It experiences things. That's what I do. That's what all of us do. That's what you're doing right now, listening to me talking. Um, so, so, again, consciousness experiences things. And if God is all that there is... If God is all that there is, if consciousness is all that there is, if that's true, then what consciousness is experiencing is itself. And so then I have to wonder, how does that work? And then I go back to I go back to what I said. I am a conscious creature. So how does it work for me? How does it seem to work for me? And you know, again, this is why I rely on the psychologists and, and Jordan Peterson in particular to to uh, flush it out. But he describes this this psychological idea of projection. And I think that there's something about that that rings true here, that what, the, what, that what consciousness does is it projects things. And that those projections, again, I don't, this isn't well understood to me, but that what those projections are is a sort of a stand-in. It's sort of a, it's sort of a symbolic placeholder that that's, exists in my psyche that, uh, that I can use to sort of um, map meaning onto. So if I encounter something in the world that I've never encountered before, that, that, you know, psychologically speaking, it's not possible for me to experience that thing because I have nothing to base it on. So what, w- the way that we've worked around that psychologically and evolutionarily is to have this, this, um, this, uns- this, um, what does he call that? Uh, um, ah, the word escapes me, but, but, but to have this faculty of projection that will allow me to um, to encounter things that I don't understand. It bridges the gap between what I don't understand and what I do understand. It bridges the gap between the unconscious and the conscious. Well, you might say bridges the gap between God and man, that this is what projection does. And so this is what I think is going on here. I think that, uh, that, that Adam is a projection of... of of what God is. It's God projecting himself into himself. And I know this is getting very hippy dippy, but you have to imagine if God is the only thing that exists, then the cosmos is made up of God. Just like we talked about, uh, on the last solo episode with the, um, 
with the the myth of Pangu from China and from Ymir from uh, from the Viking religion that you have um, stories about about the God basically using his own body to create the cosmos. And so this is what I sort of have in mind when I'm talking about this, that if God is all that exists, that God is somehow the place we exist in, the cosmos, and ourselves and everything in the world at the same time. You know, it's all that exists. So everything that exists is, is made up of, of, of that substance, that, that consciousness or God, whatever you want to call it. Um, and so I, I imagine Adam in the garden as being a projection of God within himself, a pattern within a pattern. Um, so again, this is just some insights into um, these stories, you know, from the mystic experience. To understand them this way is very different from the way you learned in Sunday school. All right. All right, how about we uh, move on from the Old Testament for just a minute? Um, I want to talk about uh, I want to talk about Jesus for a little bit because uh, it, you know Jesus has always been an interesting character. Um, it's 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 an idea that people struggle with. Uh, I struggle with it. I know Kyle struggled with it. I think every Christian at some point in their life um, has this this fear that you know when people talk about. Jesus as, as being God, being being the same thing as God, that that seems um, h- hard to make sense of because you've got this idea that God is somehow in heaven, but now somehow he's also on earth living as one of us. And we have this idea of God being this infinite, all-powerful thing and then being being forced to uh, to confront this this same idea in the in the finite body of a of a man that that you know was brutally killed you know it's like how can you how can you make those two ideas of god and jesus um mesh together how, how can you make that make sense it's difficult so so i want to talk about the story of jesus in 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 a different light you know talking about the you know the insights from the mystic experience and I want to do that with the Gospels a little bit. So, all right, so we'll start with uh, Matthew 3. Because uh, Matthew 3 brings in the, uh, the character of John the Baptist and, uh, and Jesus. And, of course, if you remember, John the Baptist was baptizing people, thus the, thus the name. And um, one of the people he baptized was Jesus. And that was sort of an important story, and a part, an important part of the story of Jesus. Um. And the passage in Matthew 3 goes like this. It says, Repent ye, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And then there's another phrase here that says, I indeed baptize you with water unto repentance, but he that comes after me shall baptize you with the Holy Ghost and with fire. So this is John the Baptist talking, and he's talking about repentance. So he says, Repent ye, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And then he says, I indeed baptize you with water unto repentance. So he's talking about repentance. Um, and this is interesting because, well, I mean, how did, you, how did you grow up learning what that word means, repent? What does it mean, you know, if you had to describe it? So, you know, I would say, just from my upbringing, that, uh, that, that to repent is a call for people to acknowledge or confess their sins and to recognize that they're imperfect and that they need salvation. 
you know, that, you know, that they're, that they're uh, fallen and that they need the salvation that's being offered by Jesus in the story. That's what repent means. Right? Wrong. And this is, this is where it gets interesting. So I wondered about this. Um, I looked up that, uh, that word in Greek for repent. It means, uh, well, excuse me, it, it's actually metanoia, metanoia, for those that might be interested. And this is what it means. This is what it actually means. A transformative change of heart, especially a spiritual conversion. The term suggests a change of mind and atonement. Okay, so there's this idea of atonement here, which does, it does kind of fit in the idea of confessing your sins and realizing that you're imperfect. Um, atonement does tend to have that meaning, but the rest of it, the rest of it doesn't. So when, when John the Baptist says repent, what he's saying is you, you must have a transformative change of heart, a spiritual conversion. That's what he's asking people to have. He's not saying, you know, confess your sins and, and dwell in your guilt and, and come to me for salvation because, because you need it. And I'm, I'm telling you, you need it. That's not what he's saying. He's saying, I, I'm inviting you to have a, a religious conversion. I'm inviting you to have a transformative experience. I'm going to baptize you with water and, and, and you'll be reborn. You know, that this is what he's saying. Now, I have something I want to say about this, but I think I want to read a little a little further uh, because John's gospel, um, he, he talks also about being baptized by the Holy Ghost um, and being baptized by fire. Um, um, going back to Matthew, there's a, another passage that describes when, when John the Baptist is actually baptizing Jesus. Um, and, and this is how it goes. And Jesus, when he was baptized went up straight away out of the water and lo the heavens were opened unto him and he saw the spirit of God descending like a dove and lighting upon him and lo a voice from heaven saying this is my beloved son okay so that's probably a good place to to uh, stop for a second okay so you have John the Baptist telling people to repent and by repent he's saying to have a transformative spiritual conversion and then when Jesus actually goes and gets baptized, this is what happens to him. When, he, when he's lifted out of the water, he sees the heavens open up. He sees the Spirit of God coming down like a dove, whatever that means, and, and lighting upon him. So, he, so you, see, you, know, you can imagine this glowing light coming down from, from, from the sky, lighting upon him, and he's seeing some sort of image, some sort of you know, might call it a hallucination or, a, or, 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 you know, something like that. He's seeing something in the sky in this light, and then he hears a voice, this ethereal voice from nowhere saying, this is my beloved son. All right, so I don't know about you, but imagine yourself having that experience. You know, you're taking a dip, you come up out of the water, and this is what happens to you. Bam, like a dynamite right in the face. The, the heavens open up and light comes down and you hear this voice, this ethereal voice from nowhere. What does that sound like to you guys? Wait, you, know, you know, it sounds like Jesus is having a mystic experience. You know, it sounds like, again, I don't want to piss anybody off unnecessarily here, but it sounds like somebody tripping balls. 
got, you know, Jesus is coming up out of the water and he has this crazy experience. We know that mystic experiences can happen from uh, psychedelic drugs. We know that. But we know it also happens in lots of other situations. So there's no connection here necessarily between Jesus and psychedelic drugs. But what he's experiencing sounds very much like a mystic experience. And that's what John the Baptist was offering. He wasn't saying, come here, let me get you a little wet and make you feel guilty about all, all you know, how shitty you are as a person. It's not what he's doing. He's saying, come here, I'm, I'm offering you, I'm inviting you to have a, a conversion, a spiritual conversion. And Jesus goes down to the water and he comes up and he fucking has one. And what is the, what is the experience telling Jesus? It's telling him, well, very, very obviously, you are my son. God is saying, you are my son. Well, what does that mean? What does that mean? You know, as a, as, a, as a Christian, that seems to mean that Jesus has a special role in the world, that he is, he is the manifestation of God on earth, and that he has a special, a special and unique role to play in the history of, of being. Um, if, you, if you have the mystic experience, just like the one that Jesus was describe, describing here, you do feel exactly what Jesus felt, that you are this, a son of God. You do feel that way, or a daughter of God, because you do feel a, a, a connection with the source of creation. You feel a oneness with everything uh, that's not limited to um, God. It's, it, you know, it's, lim- it's not limited to anything. It's all-encompassing, that you do feel yourself to be offspring of the force that caused the universe to exist. We'll call that God. And if you have a mystic experience like Jesus did, you will feel that way. Uh, you know that it's it's you know it's something that's been recorded, and many people have have repeated and had that same experience. Um, what does that mean? Does that mean that everybody who has a mystic experience is Jesus, is God? Are we all supposed to be un- understanding it that way? I don't I don't know. I don't know, but it's definitely not as straightforward as as the kind of uh, you know the the catechism type of story, the the story that the that the Catholic Church or that conservative Christians will teach you about the message of, of Jesus, you know, and the good news, you know, the the uh, you know that word um, evangelize that you know that or, or maybe it's gospel, whatever. One of those words means means good news, and that's what you know the the that's what the message of Christianity is meant to be. It's like, hey, we're we're going to go all over the world and tell the share the good news that Jesus died, so that all of you guys can be forgiven of your sins and and, and have a, a, a you know an afterlife in heaven. Um, boy, I don't know. I don't know if that's I don't know if that's the way we should be understanding this, because because here you know. It seems like the mystic experience is being offered to everyone, everyone, and everyone who has it understands themselves to be a child of God, just like Jesus did. Um, it makes me think much more of um, of Buddhism, uh, you know, where where when Buddha became enlightened, you know, he, they, they, so the so the story goes, he had the opportunity to just drift off into nirvana and be forever in bliss, and he didn't. He, he decided to stay back, to stay in being, so that he could help other creatures become enlightened. Um, and, and those 
people in Buddhism. They they call them bodhisattvas. They're like saints in, in Christianity, and that's what that's what they do. You know, they they you know they've had the mystic experience, and they want to stick around and share it with other people, um, so that uh, other people can can come to the same realization. It's 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 so important for everybody to understand. Uh, whatever that message is, that that uh, religious message that the mystic experience provides, that even people who have the opportunity to exist in heaven in this ethereal nirvana forever and bliss are turning that down. They're sacrificing that because they want so badly to share that message with everybody else. You know, that that is the good news as far as I'm concerned. The good news is that, you know, the mystic experience is possible. And Jesus had one. And uh, John the Baptist was giving that experience to anybody who, who would come up to him. Uh, okay, uh, let's see, let's see. Um, I wanted to say something about this idea of baptized by the Holy Ghost or baptized by fire. The reason is that um, a couple of things come to my mind. That when something is burned, you know, that's a, that's a for going back to like eighth grade science, for those of you who remember, you know, that's a chemical transformation. It's not reversible. You know, there are certain types of transformations like melting water or melting ice into water and freezing it back into ice that, that they're reversible. But there are other types of transformations that aren't like burning something up. So this is this is kind of what I have um, in mind here is that when you do have a uh, mystic experience and you have that dramatic conversion experience, it changes you so dramatically that you are never the same again. And and I know that to be true because that's it's the case with me. Um you're never the same again once you've had an experience like that. So being baptized by fire, having a mystic experience is absolutely like that. It's an irreversible chemical change, like burning something. So the fire makes sense. Um, it also, it also has some symbolic connections that are interesting. Like, um, when we're talking about the mandala image with Kyle before, when we're talking about it with Carl Jung, that, um, uh, that the mandala image is usually the outside layer, the outside circle or square is usually made of fire. Um, which is interesting because you've got this image that's supposed to rep- represent, um, you know, the path to enlightenment, let's say, or, or the, um, you know, you might say that the mandala represents the matrix of being that everything is, is, is born from, um, that that thing is like fire, you know, in some of the earliest religious traditions, like uh, like in the um, the ancient Iranian religion um, and uh, in the Zoroastrian religion, the god Agni was fire, or uh, or the god Hormazda, the, the you know from Zoroastrianism, that that great god was worshipped um, as fire. So you would literally have a you'd literally have a temple, and there was just fire burning in the temple, and that's what you would go worship. You're you know giving your offerings and your prayers directly to the fire because the fire was seen as a as a representation of of God somehow. Um, and uh, and even the uh, even in the Muslim tradition, the angels in the Muslim tradition are made from fire. So human beings are made from, you know, earth or clay, but the angels are made from fire. So there's something about fire here that that uh, I think is very, very closely connected to the mystic experience, and you can see it all over the place in religious traditions. All right. All right, so I'm going to go to the next chapter of Matthew here and talk about uh, another 
story. So this is where, you know, Jesus has already been baptized. He's already figured out he's, uh, you know, uh, the son of God. And um, uh, he goes off into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. So you guys may may remember that story. And during this encounter, uh, Jesus says, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceedeth out of the mouth of God. Now that is a quote from Deuteronomy, uh, from the Old Testament, but Jesus uses it in speaking to Satan. And here again, I'm going to bring your attention to the idea that what Jesus is saying is that man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceedeth out of the mouth of God. So again, now we're talking about the word again. We're talking about logos coming out of the mouth of God. So what he's saying here is that it's not, a, it's not enough for human beings to have what they need to sustain their lives, bread uh, alone. I guess that's the way he put it. Um, but, that, but that sustaining life requires the word that proceedeth out of the mouth of God. So I have to imagine this is the same word we talked about in the beginning from Genesis that was there when the world was created. Uh, it's the same word that John describes as being equivalent with God. Um, and I also think that it is related to the idea of um, God being, excuse me, man being created in the image of God. Something about the word and the image of God. Something that something about those two concepts being related, as it seems to me. Um, so the idea is something like, going back to what I said before about projection, that if consciousness is all there is, we'll call that God, and God projects within itself, um, you know, a representation to experience. Again, that's what consciousness does. It's experiencing. Uh, experiencing something, and if consciousness is all there is, then that's what it is it's experiencing. So it occurs to me that when when the Bible says that, that man was created in the image of God, that that may be a reference to a projection. That, you know, uh, it's, it's God's self-representation. That's what it is that God is, that, that God is encountering. That's what it is it's, that it's experiencing when it experiences itself. So that idea of projection and representation are very closely linked. And it occurs to me that when the Bible says man was created in the image of God, that that, that is what it has to do with. It has to do with being all of reality, um, being a, a representation of God, that, that it projects within itself. And then it, and then it experiences itself in that, in that, um, that self-representation, in that, in that projection. Um, you know, this is really hard to make sense of, and, and, you know, it's even hard for me to describe, but it's something that I've, that I've pieced together through these, these various mystic experiences. And I, I absolutely 100% believe, I'm not saying I understand it. I don't know the mechanism behind it. Um, I don't understand it, but conceptually the idea that God creates um, that it basically represents itself within itself in order to experience itself because that's what consciousness does. So that very convoluted idea has something to do with the image of God, that when God creates the, the world, the cosmos, that it's done in God's image. Okay, so if God is projecting a representation of itself to experience, of course 
of course that representation is in God's image. It's like a mirror. And this goes back to the episode that I had on the images that I've seen in the mystic experience. And so much of them have to do with reflections and mirrors. That this is, you know, without a doubt related to that. All right. All right, so the next thing I want to talk about is the phrase that's used by both John the Baptist and uh, Jesus, that the kingdom of God is at hand. <clears throat> the kingdom of God is at hand. So I don't know that there is uh, agreement, general agreement, about what is really meant by that. You know, some people say that the kingdom of God is uh, heaven, you know, some afterlife place that will go. Other people say that it is the... Um, the new Jerusalem. It's it's the promised world that's going to come after this one. So after the you know the judgment day comes and this world gets destroyed, that it's going to be rebuilt or replaced with a new a new world, and that that is the kingdom of God. Um, I don't see much evidence of any of that stuff um, in the Bible. You might say, if, you know, looking at the book of Revelations, maybe there's some evidence for it there, um, but I don't know. I mean, I, I read the book of Revelation very much like I read the book of Ezekiel, um, you know, or, or uh, Isaiah, those prophets that, that have stories, they're really trippy, crazy stories that they tell. That's kind of how I read the book of Revelation. And that's, you know, that's important in and of itself. And we can and should talk about those stories from a mystic interpretation. Um, as well, but um, but I, I digress. I guess the point I'm trying to make here is that it's not clear in the Bible that the kingdom of God is a is a kingdom to come. It looks uh, much more obviously like like that's a stretch to make to use that interpretation is a stretch. That when they say the kingdom of God is at hand, well, what what is at hand? What's at hand to you right now? Well, the, the mouse and, and this cup of coffee are at hand to me right now. So at hand means immediately present, means right here, right now. So when the Bible says that the kingdom of God is at hand, how in the world can we take that to mean anything other than that it is right now? Now, this from the mystic experience, the, from that, that perspective, this is not confusing. This is not confusing at all. Because the idea here is that, again, if consciousness is all there is, and, uh, and, and God is consciousness, then the world that's been created has been created from consciousness. Just like Pangu and Ymir that we talked about from the Chinese and the, and the Nordic religions, um, that the kingdom of God, the place that we exist in, um, the cosmos, it's here and now, and it's something that exists within God, within consciousness. So when I read that line, the kingdom of God is at hand, well, of course it is. I'm in it right now. There is no other place. The only place that exists is this, is this, this structure that came from God somehow that allows space and time and matter and energy and all the natural forces to work. The place in which all of that happens, this is the, this is the projection within God that we are, that we exist in. So when, when they say the kingdom of God, this is what comes to my mind. The place that we exist in, the cosmos, material reality, 
is the kingdom of God. It's the place that exists within consciousness, that w- the place that exists that allows things to happen. Uh, that's reality. That is the kingdom of God. It is at hand. It is right now. It is immediately available to you. It is, it is right now. That's what this is saying. Um, from the lens of the mystic experience, that makes perfect sense to me. If if I didn't allow the mystic experience to come into play as a as a filter for this, what is what does the kingdom of God is at hand mean? I mean, I'm not saying it's gibberish, but I don't know what it means, especially when you try to understand it the way that you know uh, the Orthodox Christian uh, perspective that it somehow is heaven or the New Jerusalem or something. Um, it's like way more of a stretch to say that. If you if you instead take a step back and say, you know, if we look at this from the perspective of those those religious intuitions that you get from the mystic experience, then the kingdom of God is at hand is the most obvious fact in the world. Okay. A couple more, guys. Um, I want to talk about the story of Jesus kind of broadly, like... Like what Jesus is meant to to be in the Christian tradition. Um, again, I'm going to simplify this and uh, not trying to piss anybody off, but I'm just going back to like a Sunday school understanding of the story of Jesus. Okay, so that is that Jesus was born of a virgin somehow mirac- miraculously by God. That that Jesus was placed um, on this material realm somehow supernaturally and uh, was born God on earth. And he lived like a regular, ordinary human, and um, it seems like he maybe didn't even really know that he was God until after that baptism by John the Baptist. When he came up from the water and saw the doves and was told that he was the Son of God, that is this point in the story when Jesus seems to, that's when his ministry begins. That's when he believes that he is the Son of God. You know, there are some stories that aren't, um, that aren't canonical. That they're old, ancient religious stories that are apocryphal. They're not part of the Bible. That talk about Jesus when he was young and doing miracles, and you know, seemingly knowing that he was God or supernatural. But those stories were not included in the Bible. They weren't considered to be authentic or ancient enough or something. So those are apocryphal stories. The Bible, the Gospels, don't show evidence of Jesus really believing that he's God until after that baptism, mystic experience that we already described. Um, so so the, the rest of the Sunday school interpretation goes that, you know, Jesus is God on earth. You know, he's God and man at the same time, that he lives the trials and tribulations that all human beings experience, that he voluntarily offers up his life as the payment for the sin of sins of the world. And so by his existence, by the very mere fact that God decided to come to earth in that way, um, we have salvation. This is the story that that you hear. Um, here's my here's my um, my wrench in that in that narrative. That in the Bible, the earliest gospel, which is the Gospel of Mark, was written the earliest. So if we don't talk about apocryphal books like the Gospel of Thomas, which might actually be older than this, um, the Gospel of Mark is the earliest. And what's interesting is that 
there are miracles attributed to Jesus in the Gospels. You know, he does supernatural things. He turns water into wine. He walks on water. He calms the storm. You know, he the, lo- the loaves and the fishes, you know, like Jesus is doing things that human beings can't do. He's doing miracles. These miracles are evidence to his his disciples and apostles that he is God, that he that he is being honest when he says that. he's He can back it up. So the fact that Jesus can do miracles is evidence that he's God. I, want, I just want to make that clear. And that's in the earliest gospel of Mark. That's, what's, that's what you see. Here's the thing. Jesus in the gospel of Mark, he, he tells his apostles to go out and heal and to perform miracles. It's almost like he's, he's giving the power to his apostles to go out and spread the word. And they seem to need evidence, just like they needed evidence from Jesus to do miracles, they seem to need to be able to provide evidence to other people to convince them. So they have the ability to go and perform miracles and heal the sick. So I really can't help but point out that when the Gospels say that Jesus performed supernatural deeds, and this is evidence that he is who he says he is, and then all of his ordinary apostles, his ordinary sinful apostles that are following him, that are ordinary people, they're not like him, that they're going out away from Jesus and doing the same stuff that Jesus did that convinced everybody that he was God. Okay? I don't know why people don't, why people don't point this out, why people don't recognize that Jesus did miracles and convinced everybody that he was God because of it. And then he turns around and sends his disciples out to do miracles. So what are we supposed to believe about his disciples? Are they God? They can do miracles too. Are they Jesus too? What, what, what's happening here? What is this? Why, why is this being shared with ordinary people? Okay, so let's look at that from the perspective of the mystic experience. If you know that Jesus coming up out of that water and seeing the dove and hearing the word of God saying that he was God's son. If you understand the mystic experience, you know that that experience is available to all of us. We can all have that experience. We can all believe that we're sons of God um, after having that experience. And Jesus' apostles, by his word, by his recommendation, are going out and doing miracles as well. So here again, you're looking at people that are displaying the same characteristics as Jesus, as the Son of God, the miracle workers, the supernatural, you know, creatures. They're all out there like Jesus. There are a bunch of other Jesuses out there by different names doing what Jesus did. Um, Because the mystic experience is available to everyone, and John the Baptist was baptizing everyone, and then Jesus does miracles after having this mystic experience, and then all of his apostles go out and do miracles as well. How can we not see his apostles, other ordinary human beings, as sons of God, as miracle-working sons of God, just like Jesus? So to me, the story is very clearly saying that the apostles are just like Jesus. They've had the mystic experience. They, you know... um, uh, they're they're performing miracles. What what makes what's the distinction anymore between Jesus and his apostles? So what's the distinction between Jesus and every other human being? 
this is what I think is overlooked. This is what I think is missing from the, from the biblical stories, that if you have the mystic experience and you can clearly see that Jesus himself had a mystic experience, that these things, these things don't line up the way that you kind of traditionally hear the stories. You have to look at it from a different perspective, and that perspective seems to be that, that being, that all of material reality is um, c- coming from God, existing within God, and that the mystic experience is sort of the evidence of that, and that the stories that are attributed to Jesus are not limited to Jesus. So what am I supposed to make of that? It seems to me that the stories are, are not telling us that Jesus is the unequivocal and only Son of God, but that Jesus is sort of a symbol for us to look to, to understand what's possible for ourselves. And the evidence of that is that his apostles are, they're not, they're not diminished by Jesus. They're on the same par as Jesus. They're sons of God. They're miracle workers. They're doing what Jesus did. So I have to understand the story is telling me something different than what I've been told in church. It's telling me that what Jesus is, that we are, everybody is. Now we can follow the example of Jesus and church tells us, you know, to do that. Church tells us to um, be Christ-like, let's say. Um, and, there, and there's interesting things here too, like... Uh, like communion, you know, um, the the cracker and the and the juice or wine is supposed to represent the body and blood of Christ. And if I understand Jesus to be um, like the church wants me to believe, the manifestation of God on earth, God, that when I eat His flesh and drink His blood, like you do in the communion ceremony, that what you're doing is taking into yourself God. You're incorporating God into your being. You are becoming God. So, so even this fundamental um, ritual of the Christian religion, this communion, the Eucharist, that this, that even this, is telling us something different than what what we com- commonly think. It's it's telling us that we can symbolically take God into ourselves and incorporate that into our being and somehow share in and the Godhood with God. That's what communion is telling you. Um, so you've got, you know, you've got the church telling you to be Christ-like. You've got this communion ritual. And then we're sitting in church and we're staring at the crucifix behind the altar, and Jesus hanging on the cross, and that we're staring at that image constantly while we're, while we're in church. We see the cross on the Bible, you know, maybe if we're Catholic, we've got the cross on the rosary wrapped around our hand. We're constantly meditating on the person of Jesus. That's like the focal point. That's the meditation. That's what keeps bringing us back to remembering what's important about the, about the, the passion and the suffering and the death and the resurrection. That that is why we have that symbol there in our faces all the time. But what if that's wrong? What if that symbol, what it's there doing, is reminding us that we're all sons of God, like Jesus was? What if, what if that image is supposed to have us continually meditating on the fact that there was a real-life flesh-and-blood human being that was here on earth, 
that knew that he was God and spread the message to other people to let them know that they are God, just like his disciples doing miracles. So if we look at all of these Christian traditions from the mystic perspective, this is what we're seeing. We're seeing a meditation, an encouragement that human beings should focus on their potential to be Christ-like, to recognize that they are the Son of God, that they are God the way that Jesus did, and that that is not unique to Jesus, that that's something that we're meant to slowly come to understand about ourselves. Now, you can imagine it's not easy, you know, if I tell you that. Even right now, the people listening who are faithful are probably recoiling right now. Some of you probably turned off your podcast. Um, I, you know, I don't want that. Um, just, I, I guess what I want to do is I want you to be open-minded um, and not allow the hundreds of years of tradition trying to tell you that the Jesus story means something else. I don't want you to rely on that exclusively and brush me off. I want you to, I want you to consider this perspective. Um, obviously, the church has a lot of power and control, and somebody saying to you that you don't have to go to the church uh, to find God, but it's, it's within you. That's something that the Gospel of Thomas said. That's a reason why it's not in the Bible, you might say, because the church doesn't want to give up the power that they have um, to, you know, extract resources from, from the, uh, the faithful. You know, it's self-preservation to focus on a different story than the one that the symbols of Jesus are actually seeming to point us to and his actions and words are seeming to point us to. So I don't know. I don't know, but that's my take. Uh, that's my take on the Jesus thing. Um, I think it's much closer to the story of the Buddha and, uh, you know, the, the Buddhists meditating on, um, you know, uh, enlightenment the way the Buddha described, you know, maybe not dissimilar from the Lord's Prayer that Jesus described, uh, that his, his disciples should meditate on, and that 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 nirvana, that that state of, of, of bliss, that that state of enlightenment is available to all of us. Um, that's what Buddha wanted the world to know. That is what Jesus wanted the world to know, as far as I'm concerned. All right, one last one here, and we'll wrap it up. I want to talk about the Trinity for a second, because the Trinity is something that is one, it's another one of those symbols that's very important and critical to Christianity, but it's also not exactly biblical, and um, it's very hard to understand. So there are things like we've already talked about, you know, God being described as us or we in the Bible, like it's plural. Um, we also saw things like John saying, you know, that um, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. It's somehow there's a way of understanding God as being multiple things. So I've already told you what I think the correct interpretation of that is supposed to be. It's symbolically understanding that something that's one can be many. And that is a not an intuitive thing. It's very hard to wrap your brain around it. Uh, most people um, can't really do that because it's not like anything we experience in the world. Um, but if you're very creative, creatively minded, or if you've had the mystic experience, then you, you absolutely can um, understand it that way. Um, you know, again, that, that God can be one and many. 
So this is obviously what the Trinity is supposed to be telling us. God is the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost. He's three things in one. Why? You know, why does God need to be three things in one? Why is it important for us, for our spiritual development, to understand that? Why? Well, you know, this Trinity idea is something that goes back well, well before Christianity. There's all sorts of gods from classical religions and earlier that come in, in triads, you know, pairs or triads. So in classical religion, gods, all, all, you know, very often have consorts, like a husband and a wife, like, you know, um, Zeus and, uh, Zeus and um, Hera or Kronos and Rhea. That, that, that it's husband and wife. There's consorts, like a masculine and a feminine version that go together. Obviously, there's some Jungian things we could say about that. Um, but there are also these triads, and one that's very ancient comes to us from India, from Hinduism. So it's, you know, 5,000 years ago, um, you know, but probably even earlier than that. Um, in their religion, they, they say that God is, is three gods in one, Brahma, Vishnu, and Shiva. And Brahma is the creator. Shiva is the destroyer. Uh, Vishnu is the preserver. So in their way of thinking, God is really Brahma. But Brahma exists as creator, destroyer, and preserver. And this is obviously right in line with what Jordan Peterson talks about with chaos and order and the, and the force that mediates between them, which he would call consciousness. But there's this idea of this triad of forces that are really um, understood as one somehow. And so this is the difference between being and non-being that, that I mentioned before. You know, non-being is everything together. It's God. It's consciousness. It's, un, it's undivided, undifferentiated potentiality. That's, that's how I understand consciousness. Being is the differentiated, limited version of that. It's the projection that God used, that, God, um, that, that consciousness projects within itself. Um, it's that, you know, you might, you might even call that a, a you know, self-consciousness by, all by itself, you know, as such, that that's what happens self-consciousness generates the world, the world of being that we experience, that we exist in. So again, sorry to be hippy-dippy again, but this is what I mean. Um, so I guess the, 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 the point of this idea of bringing the Trinity up is because it, it, again, the fact that it's so important to the religious story and the religious tradition, but it's really difficult to understand and doesn't really seem to play any other role in like the you know, the meaning of the, of the faith or, you know, um, the under, your understanding of God. It's like, why do I have to understand God to be these three separate things, Father, Son, and Holy Ghost? And I think that that has to do with what I just said, that God, that God as such, consciousness that's, that's you know, undifferentiated, the unconscious, let's say, um, that that is God the Father. That that's the unknowable part of of existence. Um, be, you know, being on the other hand, the material world. You know, that's flesh and blood. That's the Son. That's Jesus. That's you and I. That's being. So God exists as non-being, as the Father, as being, as the Son, and as consciousness, or or something like that, as the as the force that mediates between them. Um, now, I don't understand that. Um, as well as maybe Jordan Peterson does and can't repeat it in as skillful a manner as him. But I know it's confusing talking about 
God as consciousness, and then trying to break this Trinity down into these three three different categories, where consciousness is the force that mediates between, um, you know, being and non-being. But I think it relates to a quote we read we read from Genesis earlier, where it says that the Spirit of God, um, the Spirit of God, what does it say here? Um, the Spirit of God moved upon the waters. That there's something to that. That that Consciousness is moving along the waters of unconsciousness. It's right on that line. Water obviously representing unconsciousness. And, and um, you know, that there's something about straddling that line, like Jordan Peterson says, between chaos and order, that that's where life happens. That's where interesting things happen. That's where all things happen. Um so there's, there's again, you know, obviously not, not, not a great understanding or a deep understanding of that, but again, something to do with understanding God as many and one simultaneously. Okay, so that is basically in a in a tight little bow exactly the the takeaway from the mystic experience. So this idea of a Trinity that God can be um, can be one and many at the same time. Uh, that's exactly what you feel in the mystic experience when you become one with the universe and you understand for the first time that even though you are an, a unique individual thing, that you also exist in this continuum with everything and everyone else. So I don't know what you think about that, guys. Uh, that's Christianity from a mystic perspective with just a couple of examples. Um I don't know what you think about that. You know, if is that is that too blasphemous for you? Uh, maybe for some of you it is. Um, but you know, be open minded. Let yourself think about that for a while. I mean, I don't know how any of what I just said undermines the message of the Christian story. I don't know how any of what I just said is contrary to the idea that God is man. I'm just expanding that to say that all of us are that way that the mystic experience is available to help us realize that, which happened to Jesus himself, happened to Buddha meditating under the lotus tree or, or Bodhi tree, whatever it is. Um, that, that is the good news as far as I'm concerned. So take it or leave it, but we'll talk, we'll talk more about it, I'm hoping, in the future. For now, thanks for joining me, guys. Until next time. Well, there you have it. That's one avenue explored but infinitely more still to go. I hope you enjoyed thinking along with us. I know, I know, it's not easy work, thinking. It's hard and full of uncertainties, but I'm grateful for the company as we trek through this together. Here's to hoping that the juice is worth the squeeze. See what I did there? Let's find out together in the next episode.